Father, we just thank you for this morning. Uh, God, we thank you for your word that uh, is uh, the authority in our lives. God, we thank you that it's reliable. Uh, God, I pray that this morning you would just uh, direct our time as we uh, take a look at your word, as we study together. Uh, God, that the things that would be uh, said and communicated would be uh, what you have for us this morning. Uh, God, we thank you for... Uh, our teachers and uh, students, the kids uh, that are also uh, just going to be listening to instruction during this time. God, we pray that uh, for the teachers as they share your word, that uh, you would just uh, fill their spirit and their words with uh, what you have uh, for our kids. We thank you for them. And God, we pray that you would just uh, continue to do a good work uh, in the lives of our kids as they grow in the grace and understanding of who you are. And so, God, we just ask your blessing uh, this morning on our time together. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, Well, I don't know how many of you guys are maybe movie lovers. Anybody uh, like a good movie from time to time? All five of you, six, seven? Okay, good. Uh, That's good. It's going to make a killer introduction here. So, no, I, you know, I I like uh, watching some movies and Uh, It's kind of a cool thing, but there is uh, something that like culturally sometimes happens with movies where there are these kind of iconic one-liners, right? There's these statements or phrases or words uh, that almost transcend the movie itself, right? And sometimes you'll see uh, these very famous lines in movies. And I think part of the way that you know it kind of becomes uh, a cultural reference is when you begin to hear some of these lines uh, maybe quoted in other movies or in other TV shows or just, you know, sort of around maybe The Office or uh, whatever it is, and they just sort of stick out, and maybe you don't even know exactly where it's from or what the movie is, uh, but you've heard the line and you know what it was. So I thought this morning I would sort of uh, get us going a little bit with just a little bit of a quiz. You can uh, keep track of yourself, and I'm going to give you a line, and, and you tell me if you can uh, tell me if you know the name of the movie. So you can just kind of shout it out and uh, see if you recognize some of these lines. So here's the first one. Uh, Here's looking at you, kid. You know what movie that's from? Casablanca, 1942. Here's another one. Go ahead, make my day. Yeah, Sudden Impact, 1983. Uh, Here's one I hope everyone in this room knows. Uh, May the force be with you. Star Wars, 1977. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. The Godfather, 1972. How about, and I can't do imitation, so I'm not even going to try, but I'll be back. (laughs) The Terminator, 1984. Uh, How about Elementary, my dear Watson? Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. So the originally that was 1929. And this is maybe like one of my favorites. Uh, maybe you'll know this one. Maybe, it, maybe it's a little harder. But uh, how about this one? As You Wish. The Princess Bride, 1987. So, you know, here, here's the thing is like there are these great lines. And a lot of times we know the movies, even if you haven't necessarily watched the movie. But uh, it's kind of a cultural thing, right? That sometimes these lines stick with us, and they become, uh, like I said, part of our culture in some ways. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, like, you know, I wonder, when we think about the Bible, when we think about God's Word, are there lines that sort of stick with us, 
These powerful statements that sort of transcend uh, how we understand and, and our view of Scripture, if you will. And I know a lot of us, we have like a favorite Bible verse maybe, right? Like a verse that really is impactful. But even beyond that, when you think about Scripture, is there a specific phrase or a specific uh, uh, line that if, if you were to say this is the line that sort of represents or encapsulates Scripture for me, I wonder what would that be? What would that phrase be that would stick out that would be this powerful statement that would sort of be representative and almost iconic, if you will, as it, when it comes to Scripture? I, I think that for me, one of those lines is in this passage that we're going to look at today. We're going to be in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up there and you can look there. But I want to start with this, that there is this line that is in the middle of this passage that we're going to look at, that in my opinion is, if, if you will, if you can kind of go along with me, it's like biblically iconic. And here it is, behold, your king is coming. So just sit in that for a second. Behold, your king is coming, right? Behold, wait, look, watch, be ready. Because why? Your king, the the king of kings, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, uh, the redeemer, God with us, your king is coming. That his presence is with us. It's a great line. And I think it's a great line because it's such a great truth. And so this morning, we're going to look and unpack this passage and not just that line, but this whole passage, because it is so deep and so rich in what it means for us, not just in terms of the event that we're looking at, but in terms of the message that was being communicated. But I think that we have to be careful We have to be careful that we understand what the true message is that maybe is a little bit different than what we would think. Maybe it's a little bit different than what others would anticipate. So John chapter 12, again, to give us a little bit of a context, I'm picking up, as Pastor Paul said, where we've where you guys had previously left off. I don't know, I think it's several months maybe now at this point that uh, we're in there. But John chapter 11, we have the death and resurrection of Lazarus, right? Jesus shows up and his power is on full display. And we see this resurrection of Lazarus that happens. And then in the beginning part of chapter 12, we see Mary coming and she is responding to this. And so she's giving honor and glory to Jesus for the power that he has just displayed, the power of the Messiah, the power of the coming king. And all of this is on full display. And then Jesus moves from Bethany and he moves and goes to Jerusalem. And we have, again, a very common sort of often taught passage here in John chapter 12. It's the triumphal entry. It is when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem And for the very, really first time, he is announcing his messiahship, his kingship. And he is setting in motion the the work, the activity that is going to bring about his, his, you know, arrest, his persecution, his betrayal, his death, and eventually his resurrection. And so let's just read the whole thing together. 
And then I just want to sort of identify some characteristics that maybe will be helpful for us this morning. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb was raised from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they, he, they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so we have this, this great passage here where Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. And this triumphal entry really is a passage that is recorded in all four of the synoptic gospels. And yet there is a different sort of perspective, just like we would expect in any type of, uh, you know, in any type of a situation where you have four different people that are looking at it and viewing it and four, you know, from four different perspectives. Uh, you know, we have John who has a very specific perspective that he's looking on. And so it's going to identify different components than what maybe some of the other gospels are identifying. And one of the things that we see that John highlights here is the crowds. John doesn't really look at some of the details of what happened as much as some of the other Gospels do. But what he focuses in on is the crowds that are there. In fact, what we're going to see in this is that there's an identification of three different crowds that, ha that are present. You, you have this crowd that is there uh, for a festival. They're there for a party. They're there for Passover, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But then you also have this other crowd that was present in Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of that power, because of that glory, they've come and they followed him, and they're watching, and they're part of this group that is observing him coming in to the city of Jerusalem. And, and then, if you will, you have this other third group, this other crowd, uh, that is the Pharisees, the religious elite. Leaders, the people uh, that are there to sort of keep an eye on things. They're already uh, concerned and sort of plotting and planning based on what happened with Lazarus. And now they want to see what's happening next. They, they're looking for an opportunity to be able to deal quickly and to deal harshly with Jesus. And so John focuses these things on the crowd. And here's why I think. And, and this is sort of the message, I'm going to sort of give you the whole point of this message right here in the nutshell, and it's this, is that Jesus comes and he demands and he expects a response. That when Jesus acts, he comes in a way where he wants to take over, that he wants to be in charge of our lives. He wants to be in charge of what's going on. And just like these three different crowds, we have a decision to make. We have to decide whether or not we're going to allow Christ to take over in our lives. How are we going to respond? And so we're going to look at these different responses through the form of sort of the characteristics of this road. Jesus travels this road into the city of Jerusalem. 
And I think that there are four significant characteristics to this that influence how we respond, how we look at the triumphal entry. The first is a road of destiny. That this road that Jesus traveled into was a road of destiny. Let me read this again, verses 12 through 15. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so what we see here right at the beginning is that Jesus comes and he is riding in on this road in a place of destiny, in a place of calling, in a place of purpose. It is a fulfillment of what God has called him to. And I think that this is an important to note is that Jesus was on the right road, going in the right direction at just the right time. That it was purposeful and meaningful. And this is important because this is really a shift from what Jesus had been doing and how he had been operating during the, the primary parts of his ministry and his teaching. The event was a complete reversal of all that Jesus had done up into his ministry up to this point. And until now, Jesus had basically mostly kept hidden his identity as the Messiah. And if you look back, there's a lot of different passages that refer to this. Let me give you just a few that are based out of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, there was a demon who proclaimed him to be the Holy One of God. And Jesus told him to be quiet. In Mark chapter 1, and then again in Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus healed people. And then he commanded them not to tell anyone. In Mark chapter 5, when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he gave strict orders that no one should know about it. In Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9, when the disciples began to sort of gain insight into his identity as Messiah, he told them not to tell anyone. And really, this was true all throughout his ministry, with maybe the exception of the woman at the well, where she went and told some of the different people in uh, her community what was going on. But, you know, she was uh, in Samaria. She was a Samaritan woman. And so, uh, really, Jesus was hiding his identity specifically from the Jewish people because he knew how they would respond. In fact, at a different point, he saw how they were going to respond when they wanted to announce him as king. At one point, he hid himself and slipped through the crowd and disappeared. He he knew what their expectations would be. He knew what the ideas would be, their response, what they would jump to. And so he was careful about this. But then listen, at the right time, it happened. When he was on the right road, going in the right direction, the timing was right. Listen, I think that that's important for us. That a lot of times, we're looking and we're wondering what Jesus is doing. We're wondering why God is acting or not acting. We're sort of wondering maybe what's going on in our own lives and and why or when the spiritual things, the activity of God is going to take place in our lives. And we have to stop and we have to consider, are we on the right road? Are are we going in the right direction? Are, Are we operating in the right timing? 
Jesus was on the right road. He was heading in the right direction. Sometimes that's hard to know. But one of the things that I think is true in this passage is that it was in accordance with the will of the Father. That that Jesus was at this place moving in this direction at this time because he was following the will of the Father. And that was in accordance with the word of the Father, what had been prophesied, what had been predicted for, from the very beginning. But there is also a second element to that, that not only does the Son have an eye on the will of the Father and the word of the Father, but the Father always has an eye on the glory of the Son. God is always operating in a way that is going to bring about the full glory of Jesus Christ. And so when we consider our own lives and we think about what's going on or not going on in our lives, I think that those are the two things that we have to consider. Is that what is the will of the Father and what is the fullest glory of His Son, Jesus Christ? Because even in their own relationship, as they interact as two persons of the triune God, that there is some allegiance to the will and the word of the Father and to the glory of the Son. And here's the thing, is a lot of times we want to sort of uh, create our own will of the Father. And and sometimes we think that we're going to just sort of self-designate what we think God's will is. And that's why it's important that it's not just the will of the Father, but it's in accordance with the Word. There's too many people these days that are determining what they believe to be the will of the Father, even though it is in conflict with the Word of the Father. And so these two things work in conjunction with each other. That we have to be about the will and the word of the Father and the glory of his Son. And that's what was happening here. It matters what Jesus was doing. It matters where he was going. If we're following Jesus, it means being on the right road, going in the right direction at the right time. But the reason that we don't just operate that way with anybody is because it matters where Jesus went. It matters where he was going and what he was going to accomplish. There was a man who was tracing his family origin. Maybe some of you have done this, and he was uh, in the process of his research. He went to uh, visit several cemeteries, and he was able to collect information from some of the various gravestones. And at one place, he came across this monument with the following inscription. It said, Pause now, stranger, as you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so soon you'll be. Prepare yourself to follow me. But, you know, it's kind of profound. It's kind of this interesting thought. But as he was looking at this monument, he noticed that there was another sign that somebody had placed next to the monument. And so next to this gravestone, there was a board that had the following words. It said, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) Right? It's pretty true, I think. But isn't that really the truth in terms of our walk? Is that it's not just about being on any road. It's not just about going in any direction. It's not just about any timing. But it's about following Jesus in his way, according to his word, for the glory of the Son. See, I think one of the great things about this road of destiny 
is the realization that there are no accidents when it comes to the life of Christ. I wonder if you believe that. There are no accidents. There's nothing in the life of Christ that happened accidentally. It was planned and determined for our good and for the benefit of the world. And the same is true in our lives, that God allows things, he brings about things, he blesses things, and there are no accidents, there are no coincidences. The 14th day of Nisan was a date etched into the minds of all good Jewish people. It was a day to celebrate Passover. Uh, Passover, as you know, is uh, is kind of in the March-April. It's very concurrent with our Good Friday and Easter season. It's one of the great festivals of the Jewish year when the people reminded themselves of the very dramatic way in which God saved them. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 12. It was a time of fun and excitement, and large numbers of the Jews would make to the trip to Jerusalem. For Jesus, it was very much a road of destiny. The, the time was right. See, the, the Old Testament really uses both broad and narrow prophecies, and Jesus alone fulfilled these prophecies again and again. And I won't go too much into that. Pastor Paul uh, talked about some of the uh, amazing stats uh, as it relates to the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled uh, a few weeks back. You can go online and check that out, and it's, uh, it's just a really great summary of all of that. But there are some prophecies that are broad, and there are some prophecies that are narrow. Let me maybe just give you an example of that to illustrate it, since the Super Bowl is right around the corner. Uh, I'll, I'll illustrate it with football. You, you can have a broad prophecy with the Super Bowl, and you can say, uh, you know, I believe that somebody from the NFC is going to win the Super Bowl next year, right? And maybe that would happen, and people would be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. But people wouldn't be that impressed, right? I mean, it is sort of this fulfilled prophecy, this fulfilled prediction. But there are a bunch of teams that are in that side of the division that could win. And so uh, in some sense, there's kind of a 50-50 chance that you're going to be right about that. But there are narrow prophecies as well. So an example of a narrow prophecy is you might say, uh, you know, the Bears are going to win the Super Bowl and the score is going to be 21 to 17. Now... Any Bears fans would know how ridiculous that is. <laughs> but that would be a very specific prophecy, right? And if that happened, uh, we, we would all be amazed, right? <laughs> but there's a difference between broad and narrow in the Old Testament and New Testament. So we have that even here. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there, or in this passage, we have the fulfillment of a of broad prophecy. Let me give you a couple of examples. One is the palm branches that are being talked about. The branches are from date palms and were abundant in Israel. And their use is important uh, for very symbolic reasons. Palms had become a symbol of Jewish nationalism. When the temple was rededicated during the Maccabean era, palms were used in the celebration. In the extra-biblical tradition, palms were used by Levi as a symbol of ruling power. During both major wars with Rome, uh, reliefs of palms were stamped on the coins minted by the rebels. So this act of celebration, this palm branches, was not a neutral statement. It symbolized 
Israel's national hopes. It was focused on Jesus being the fulfillment of a national figure. And then we have this cry of Hosanna. It's an Aramaic phrase that means save us now. And it occurs a number of times throughout the Psalms. Uh, Specifically, we see it a couple of times in Psalm 118. And we see it there announcing this blessing. And and it's about like this pilgrim. When pilgrims would come into the city, uh, this would get announced. And it was something that was happening from uh, just kind of random people that would be coming into Jerusalem But now it kind of deviates from its original meaning and it becomes part of who Jesus is as he comes in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so here we see the crowds greeting not just another pilgrim, but somebody who they're seeing as being a national liberator. And so this broad prophecy begins to be fulfilled, but it's in a little bit different way than what you would generally think. It's kind of this Jewish nationalism. It's kind of this national hero or liberator kind of context. But then there is a specific context that sort of brings it down and focuses it in a little bit more. It's a narrow prophecy that comes from a couple of different places, but primarily from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Listen to what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this was not an accident. The script had been written in heaven and people were watching it being acted out in front of their very eyes. But I think that there are a couple of things to point out here that are noticeable differences. If you have your Bible open to John chapter 12, look at this passage uh, that is being uh, quoted here in verse 15. And just read it as I read for you again, Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. And notice the subtle differences that are going to be what was originally prophesied versus what was quoted in John chapter 12 verse 15. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a little bit different. Uh, One thing that is absent, there's three actually things that are absent here. One is rejoice greatly. You know, why why didn't they say rejoice greatly? Well, because Israel could not rejoice They were about to reject the king. The the leaders of Israel had been rejecting Christ from the very beginning. They had to fulfill uh, really three different aspects. In Zechariah 12.10, it says that they must first mourn. In Hosea chapter 5 verse 15, they must acknowledge their guilt. And then in Acts chapter 3 verse 19, it says that they must repent. And so they weren't able to rejoice in this until they had gone through this process of mourning and rejecting and acknowledging their guilt and repenting of their sin. There's another part of this that's missing, righteous and having salvation. I think it's interesting here that this 
this road, this traveling into Jerusalem was about grace, not justice. And Jesus, the first time that he came, he came riding on donkey because he came in love and in grace. And so it's a little bit different. There will be a time that he comes and he rides a different animal and he will come in full righteous and full judgment according to his salvation. And then the third one is you don't see the humble word that's there. You know, it's interesting here because John isn't suggesting that Jesus didn't come humbly or that he wasn't humble in spirit at this point. Another, uh, another gospel says that he was, came meek. Um, and, and, but John is, isn't necessarily saying that he didn't have humility, but that's not the point that John is trying to make. Uh, each of the gospels sort of focuses on a different specific emphasis. Uh, you know, Matthew, when you read Matthew, Matthew is presenting Christ as king. And so he focuses on the kingship of Jesus. When Mark writes his gospel, he's focusing on Jesus as the servant. And so he focuses on the ministry and the works of Jesus. When Luke wrote his gospel, he's focusing on Jesus as the son of man, his humanity. And so he focuses on that. But John, when he writes his gospel, he's focusing on Jesus being the son of God, his glory, his deity. And so he is showing the full glory of who Jesus is here. It was this road of destiny. There's a second characteristic that I want to draw attention to here. And that is not only was it a road of destiny, but it was a road of devotion. Again, let me read chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. They were looking and expecting and thinking that they were going to have this national liberator, this hero that was going to sort of take care of all of their earthly problems. But Jesus came to give the gift of life, not conquest. Jesus wasn't motivated or devoted to the things that people wanted, what the crowds wanted. He was motivated and he was devoted to God's plan. See, triumphal entries were common in the ancient world. A conquering hero or a king would return to his city, bringing the spoils of battles and stories of conquest. And this imagery would have not been missed, especially by any Greek-speaking person that was on the edge of the Roman Empire. And so when John says that the crowd went out to meet him, this is a common expression that was used for cities meeting their triumphant returning king. This was their version of a ticker tape parade. Right? When somebody does something really good or a team wins or something like that, we throw a parade. They would have these triumphal entries that would be signs of conquest. In fact, I'll give you a quick example of this. This is a picture of the Arch of Titus that is in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Titus came and he defeated the city of Jerusalem. And so they built this arch. I don't know if we can get it up there or not, but... Uh, they built this arch yeah, they, uh, that has these reliefs that were inside the arch. I guess I'll just describe it. And, um, and there was, so the, the entry sort of brought this whole thing 
where they were celebrating this entry of this conqueror who had defeated all of these different enemies. And there was such a celebration that they built this archway that is actually still there today. Hey, how about that? God bless technology. Sometimes we're looking for conquest, though, over life. We, we expect or we desire the power of God to bring about conquest in our betrayed relationships or in our unfair workplaces, in our corrupt culture. But more than conquest, Jesus seeks to bring life. He, he moves in grace and in love. God seeks to bring an abundance of his character, life, grace, peace, truth into the brokenness of our world. He chooses to come in a way that's different than what we would expect. And I think sometimes it's different than what we would even want. Devotion is difficult, though, because devotion sometimes means that we will move towards danger and into suffering. Jesus came in grace, but he didn't come for the sake of safety and pleasure. He didn't come to try to make the lives of the Jewish people all better and nice and easy. But in fact, as we know, the triumphal entry, he was moving towards an event where he would be arrested, where he would be persecuted, where he would be crucified, where he would die, and he would be raised again. He was willing to move towards danger and into suffering because he understood that it was a road of devotion it reminds me, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Sir, I, uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton. Uh, he was a late 19th century uh, explorer, and he uh, was specifically an Antarctic explorer. And he was involved in a variety of different explanations, but he gained quite a bit of fame at different points for different things that he did. One of the things that he's most significantly known for is his ship endurance and uh, they were traveling through, and it got stuck in the ice, and him and his crew uh, sort of had to survive for a long time uh, before they were eventually uh, able to get out and be rescued, but the ship was, was, was eventually lost. In fact, there's still uh, people, if you kind of look around, there's still people that have gone back and tried to find this ship, uh, but to my knowledge, they haven't been able to find it yet. But one of the things that I just thought was really interesting is that one time there was this ad that he posted uh, later, later in his life, and this is what he was looking for some help. And so this was the ad that, he that appeared in the London newspaper. This is what it said. It said, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful. Now, I don't know how many of you guys would sign up for that. <laughs> But the amazing thing was, is that hundreds of men responded and wanted to join him. And say, so, you know why? It's not just the adventure, but it was the person. You know, Sir Ernest Shackleton sort of lost his fame after he died. He became, people didn't know much about him. And then he kind of resurfaced years later uh, just for his leadership skills and the thing was, is that he was just a fantastic leader. People were excited to join him. See, the name and the adventure made all the difference. 
for us as believers, the name and the adventure makes all the difference. We can be willing to move towards danger and into suffering because of the name, because of Christ, because of the glory of who he is and the accomplishment of the will of the Father. That because Jesus was on the right road, moving in the right direction at just the right time, then we can confidently join him and be on the right road, moving in the right direction at just the right time, no matter where that leads, no matter how hard it might get. That leads us to really the third uh, character of this road. It was also a road of discovery. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. It's interesting. I just want to, as a quick aside here, point out that, uh, you know, the life of Jesus, the, the, the word of God that we have is not just a bunch of made up stories the way some people would have you believe. Uh, some people think that, Uh, These are just a bunch of people that were just out for themselves to make a name for themselves. And so they wrote these stories. But but if people were just making this stuff up and they just wanted self-recognition and acclaim or whatever it was, uh, why on earth would they testify to the fact that they themselves didn't have a clue what was going on? You know, most of the time, if you're just making things up, you're not going to make things up that are (laughs) self-deprecating. You know, the the honesty that is in this passage is uh, a testimony to the legitimacy and the reliability of Scripture. But like us, the disciples apprehended the divine things slowly. I don't know if that's true of you, but it's definitely true of me. Sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to comprehend the divine work of God. It's not always easy to figure out. But notice in here that it does not say that they didn't believe these things, but that they simply did not understand these things at first. There was a little bit of a reinterpretation that was needed. In some sense, you could say that they needed to have, as a people, a messianic reinterpretation. The context here is full of Jewish political fervor. The Psalms, the entry, the cries, they all remind us of what happened in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus fed the 5,000, and the crowd uh, had announced that Jesus was the prophet, and, uh, and out of that, they wanted to make him king. And so Jesus was misunderstood. He was misunderstood then, and he's being misunderstood again. And Lazarus This miracle in chapter 11 where he raises Lazarus from the dead, it fuels the crowd's enthusiasm. But now it's being sort of twisted and linked into Jerusalem's political aspirations. You know, they greeted him as king, but they were ignorant of his nature, his true kingship. In 165 BC, the Jews thought that they had discovered the Messiah. There was a heroic leader called Judas Maccabees. And he helped the Jewish people throw off years of oppression by Syria. In a very similar fashion, he rode into the city of Jerusalem. People even greeted him by waving palm branches and singing Hosanna, Psalm 118, the song for a king. But they soon discovered that Judas was not the Messiah. 
He was, in fact, a freedom fighter, and he very much had a political agenda. But that was different than how Jesus was coming. The crowds thought that Jesus was showing up to come and to destroy the Romans. But they, they misunderstood. Really, he came to destroy life's greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And so I think this is important for us to understand, is that we don't change who Jesus is. We change our understanding of who Jesus is. And let me sort of clarify that in case you think that's like heretical. But Jesus is immutable. The word of God is immutable. It is never changing. It is unchanging. And so it's not that Jesus changes. It's not that the word of God changes. It's not that we redefine and reinterpret what his word is. But it is the simple fact that we grow in our understanding of who God is. It is part of the journey of following Christ. It's part of our sanctification that we grow in our understanding. But, but listen, it is preceded by belief. We don't wait until we understand and then decide if we're going to believe, but we put our faith in Christ, we trust his word, we believe in who he is and who he says that he is, and we put our faith in that, and then we grow in our understanding of who he is. But it is us that are changed. It is us where we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, is what Romans chapter 12 says. But we begin to grow and we begin to change and we begin to develop. And over time and through circumstances, we begin to see how God is at work and things that we didn't quite understand in one sense, now we begin to understand in another circumstance. And some of us have been through that. Some of us have been through hard things. And that's, that's part of the journey, isn't it? Part of being on the right road, moving in the right direction at the right time takes us into these places It takes us to places that are, that are dangerous. Places where there's suffering. Uh, I don't know. So in those moments, it is difficult. It's difficult to understand. So... Um, you know, one of the things that as I was sort of thinking and preparing through this is uh, my, my wife and I just recently had a difficult uh, situation. I don't know if I'm going to really be able to talk too much about it, but um, we're, we're excited to be able to uh, kind of make an announcement this week. Um, but uh, last, last week, my wife and I lost a baby. So, not sharing this for pity or comments, uh, but the interesting part of this is my wife and I were sitting over dinner last night and just kind of talking. I was just sharing a little bit about um, what the Lord was leading me to share this morning. And, uh, um, you know, I said it, it, it's kind of hard because all these things that I'm kind of talking about are directly tied uh, to what happened. And I wasn't going to share it uh, just out of uh, just 
some, some concern and, and, and love for my wife. Um, but she was actually the one that said, you need, you need to share this and you need to uh, maybe just allow to see if it, it will help other people, basically. And so I appreciate that. Um, but it's hard. When you're on the road that you're supposed to be on, and there are these things that happen, and, and I'm not suggesting, especially for others that I know are in this room that have been through similar situations, that God causes those things to happen. But there are some times that God allows us to go through some really difficult things. And in those moments, we may not understand. I, I have no idea why God would allow something like that to happen. But just because I don't understand doesn't change the fact that we believe that God is good. It doesn't change the fact that I believe that God is sovereign and that his will is for the sake and the glory of the Son. And I don't know if there will be a point in time in the future that you will understand something like that. But I know that we will continue to grow in our grace and understanding of who God is. And I know that we will continue to trust that God's plans, while they may not make sense to us all the time, are for our good. And that he's, you know, that there's greater things that are going on in our lives that we don't necessarily always understand. And so we don't understand the activity of God, but we trust the character of God. And I think that that's what sort of this idea of being on a road of, of discovery is all about, is that we're constantly kind of having to shift, just, just like the people here. There, there was a shift in how they were seeing Jesus. They, they didn't understand exactly what was going on at that time. And so there needed to be a shift. And it's part of our walk with Christ. Things don't always turn out the way that we want. Uh, things don't always go the way that we hope. But we trust God and we walk with him. And the more that we discover of who he is, the more peace and hope we find in our lives. There was a man who received a birthday card from his wife one year, and on the outside of it, it read, Darling, you're the answer to my prayers. And then he opened up and read the inside, and it said, You're not exactly what I prayed for, but apparently you're the answer. <laughs> you know, I, I think that that is true for us as well. You know, sometimes we pray, and we trust, and we pray, and then something a little bit different comes along, something a little bit different than what we wanted happens. But we trust. You know, this isn't exactly what I prayed for, but it must be your answer to prayer because it's what you've given me. It leads to the last one, and I'll try to close this here quickly, but uh, the last character of the road is the road of decision. And this is kind of the point, right? Is that the road of destiny... <laughs> the road of devotion, the road of discovery, it leads to this idea of decision. Uh, notice in verse 17, at the beginning of this section, we saw the crowd that had come from Bethany 
who had seen what Jesus had done with Lazarus. But we see the other two crowds that I mentioned earlier in the last part of this section, verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Sorry, I said that wrong. This is the crowd from Lazarus. At the beginning was the crowd from the festival. My apologies. Uh, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees, this other crowd, if you will, or group, said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, Jesus, I think he acts and makes a claim that forces a decision. God is going to constantly be acting in our lives in a way that is going to stake a claim of who he is. And when he stakes this claim, it is going to demand a response from us. And so when we lose a job or when we have a failed relationship or when we lose a child, God is going to stake his claim. Whether it's a claim of sovereignty or love or grace, And in that, every time a claim is staked, there is a decision that has to be made. Am I going to honor that? Am I going to follow that? Or am I going to reject it? There's these three crowds. The religious crowd rejected Christ ultimately. The festive crowd, who was shouting Hosanna one day, soon later were fickle and they began to shout, crucify him. In the moment when everything was going good, they were able to say, yep, I'm yours. This, I'm all about this. I'll follow you. But then when things got hard, when things changed, they were done. And they were ready to reject. But then there was this other group that saw the power of God manifested in the life of Lazarus. And they continued to bear witness. They continued to follow. See, Jesus didn't come just to have a political role. He didn't come to just rule a nation. He didn't come to just take care of Rome for the Jewish people, but he came to take over. He came to take over not just that city, not just that group of people, but the whole world. It reminds me of Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua was by Jericho and he lifted up his eyes and it says, Behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or, or for our, advers- our adversaries? And he said to him, them, and he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I love that. I mean, essentially Joshua is saying, you know, are you for us or are you for them? And he says, No, right? I haven't come to take sides, but I have come to take over. The the people that were gathered there that were welcoming Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, they were thinking that Jesus had come to be on their side, to, to take over the Romans, to take over the rule, to bring about a heavenly kingdom on earth, but that wasn't what Jesus was about. The world was wrong. Jesus was not staking a claim to a political throne or rule, or kingdom. Jesus was staking his claim over all of life. He came to rule, but he came to rule differently than they thought he would. Again, just real quickly, let me end with these four points. Because these are, I think, four areas 
that Jesus comes to take over in our lives. It's what he's done, and it's what he wants to do in our lives. Number one is that he staked his claim over the physical world. Through the fall of Adam, humans lost dominion of the earth, but Jesus reclaimed it. At his command, the wind stopped, the storm were ceased, the water became wine, the fish appeared where there had been none, five loaves and two fish fed over 5,000 people, the lame walked, the blind were given sight, the deaf were given hearing. Jesus was bringing about a new kingdom. He staked his claim over the moral world. Mark chapter 2, Jesus was teaching, and you'll remember four friends lowered a man who was paralyzed in to see Jesus. And it says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. He, he, he put on display that he had the authority to forgive sins. In Matthew chapter 5, he has the authority to preach. It says, be perfect, therefore, as your father is imperfect. He set the standard of holiness and righteousness. Thirdly, he staked his claim over the eternal world. Jesus has conquered death. It was exemplified in the life of Lazarus as he called him out of death into life. But his greatest proof to that claim was that he was the resurrection in the life was his own resurrection over death where he firmly staked his claim in the eternal realm. And then lastly, he staked his claim over the spiritual world. In Joshua chapter 5, what we just read, we have this commander who came on behalf of the army of the Lord, the heavenly hosts. Uh, Jacob saw the heavenly hosts when he returned from exile. Elisha saw the hosts surrounding God's people prior to battle. Jesus spoke of the hosts when he was leaving Gethsemane, when he indicated that he could have called 12 legions to come and, and to help him out that were at his disposal, but he didn't. Jesus knew that through the cross, he would reclaim the spiritual world. It was different than what people expected. And here's the thing, is it will be different the next time too. Jesus wants to take over. He wants to take over our lives, but he right now wants to do it in a manner of grace and love. But there will be a different day where Jesus will return and he will take over. And it will look very differently. And it won't be in grace and love. It'll be in righteousness and justice. I want to sort of put up a picture that is just sort of an artist's rendering of this as I read Revelation 19. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations, and he will rule with them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Jesus has staked his claim over this world. And in fact, he wants to stake his claim over our lives. He doesn't want to just be a part of our lives, but he wants to take over and have full control in our lives. Today, Jesus wants to take over. He wants to take over your plans. He wants to take over your dreams and goals. 
He wants to take over your money. He wants to take over your relationships. He wants to take over your job. But that's not all. He also wants to take over your sin. He wants to take over your struggles and your problems. He wants to take over your pain and your loss. He wants to take over your shortcomings and your failures. He wants to take over your insufficiencies and your insecurities. He wants to take over in every area of your life. How Jesus comes to us is different than what we expect. It's probably even different than what we want at times. But when he comes, and the way he comes, is according to the will of the Father, and in the fullness of the glory of the Son, and for our eternal good. And so, with joy, and with excitement, with anticipation, and with correct biblical understanding, we can say, behold, the king is coming. We just have to be ready. We have to be ready and allow him to take over. Because at some point, he will take over, whether we're ready or not. Let me pray, and then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, thanks for just grace with everyone here trying to get through this. And um, God, I just pray that you would just work in our hearts. God, I pray that you would just remove anything that was said, uh, God, that was not what you have for us this morning. But God, that I pray and trust, uh, God, that you, <laughs> this, this truth about wanting to take over in our lives, God, that you would just come and that you would take over. God, that you would be our Lord, that you would be our King. Maybe not in the way that we always would want or think should happen, but God, we know that you want to take over in a way that is real, that is eternal. And so, God, I pray that you would just open our hearts to that. God, that we would be following you as we follow on your road, going the right direction at the right time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.